Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis, right at the start, Genesis chapter 3. And I want to talk this morning about a subject that's really not very easy for us to talk about. Part of the reason why it's not easy is because we don't always recognize just how insidious this is. And part of it is because we're in various stages of denial about how much it actually impacts our life. And the third part of it is that sometimes we think we've kind of got it all figured out. And as believers, some of us have been believers for a long time. When we've been believers a long time, we kind of know the lay of the land. And, you know, even though we continue to fail at it, uh, we're, we're good. The subject is the appeal of temptation and the constant inclination to yield to sin. Now, that never stops, and it never abates in any way. And even though we've been forgiven of sin, and even though we've been exonerated and freed from its ownership, it is still something that we struggle against every day. And we haven't figured out how to overcome it on our own, and we don't have the power to overcome it on our own, or we would have already done that. So there is a problem that exists, even though we're forgiven, even though we're secured, even though nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, there is a problem that sin continues to appeal to us. And sin continues at, at some point to be part of our lives. Now, we can make significant progress against it. In fact, the more we understand the nature and characteristics of temptation and we learn how to recognize it and offset it, what is actually designed to destroy us and to, and to kind of uh, take us apart spiritually can actually be turned into something that's a place of growth and of strength. Now, up till now in this short series we've done about bearing fresh fruit, we have talked about uh, the ways in which we can grow fruit. And last week we defined that as uh, the constant and consistent evidence in our lives of being like Christ. So when we say fruit, it's Christ-likeness. It's it's having the characteristics, the nature, the actions, the attitude, the thoughts, the words of Christ evidenced in our life uh, constantly. But in the next two studies, we're going to talk about the sacrificial steps that are needed to make that fruit healthy and for the garden to mature. Because when we really think about it, our lives are kind of like a garden. Our lives are to be bearing evidence of fruitfulness, evidence of of the presence and the power and the, and the nature of God in our lives. And God has the expectation for every one of us that's a believer that that garden is going to be healthy and it's going to be fruitful and it's going to be representative of his hand. But the enemy has other designs for our lives. And just like he did in the Garden of Eden, which we're going to study here in chapter 3, his desire is to do all that he can to destroy the garden. His desire for our lives, the enemy wants to make it so that there is either no evidence of the presence of God in our lives or that the fruit of our lives is so damaged and so unhealthy that our beliefs and our witness have no credibility. He doesn't have our best interests in mind. He doesn't want to see us grow. He doesn't want to see us be godly. He wants to do everything he can 
to, to fatally, and I don't mean fatally we lose our salvation, but, but to drastically damage our lives so there's no evidence of fruit. You remember our first study about a month ago, we looked at the five kinds of fruit. He doesn't want us to look like that. He wants us to be dry and damaged and infested and, and, and uh, uh, polluted and corrupted and any other word you can think of that, that is not healthy. He wants that. And if he can damage our witness and damage our credibility in the process, that's the goal. Now, that's been his plan since man was created. And it will not change until he's thrown into the lake of fire forever. He'll do anything he can to undermine the Lord and to undermine the Lord's disciples. So when we look back at this first temptation and the first act of yielding to sin, we can pick up some clues on how he, he drives us, how he pushes temptation on us, and how we can be resistant and resilient against temptation. He has not changed tactics in 6,000 years. He hasn't changed the way that he operates for six millenniums because he knows that it's effective. And he knows that we fall into it very, very easily. Now, that's also his weakness because we can learn from his consistency. There's no question that the devil is subtle and that he's devious and that he's a careful student of behavior. But here's what we also need to understand. He is overly arrogant, and he is cocky, and he doesn't realize that we can be a student of his behavior. He watches us carefully. He is not omniscient. He does not know what you're thinking. If it's not uttered out of your mouth, he cannot know for sure that you're thinking it. That's why Jesus says, take every thought captive, because we have to be careful that what's in our mind doesn't come out if it's not holy. But he watches very carefully. He studies your behavior. He studies my behavior. He knows our tendencies. He knows what causes us to fall. He knows what tempts us. He knows what aggravates us. He knows what makes us angry because he watches closely. At the same time, we can look at his behavior and say, this is how he drives me toward temptation. So that's what we're going to study this morning. We're going to study the, the things that are characteristic of every temptation. Again, this hasn't changed since the Garden of Eden, so we can learn a lot from it. Let's look at our Bibles. Genesis chapter 3, start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, verse 4, You surely will not die, for God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, temptation starts, we see this in verse 1, Temptation starts 
with the casting of doubt about the credibility of God and about the credibility of his word. Temptation always starts with, with, a, with a doubt, with a statement of, is God really who he says he is? And is God's word really valid? You see what the devil asks here. He says, has God said this? He doesn't start with overt temptation. He doesn't take a piece of the fruit off the tree and dangle it in front of Eve and say, oh, that looks so good, doesn't it? You know you want a bite. Instead, he just starts with creating distrust. Did God really say that? Did he really mean that? You see, the battle in our lives is always over who we trust. Of course the Lord had told them that. Eve knew exactly what God had said. In fact, she quotes him verbatim. She says, no, God says we can eat of any tree but that tree. We're not allowed to eat of that one. She knew good and well what she could and couldn't do. She knew good and well what she should and shouldn't do. But the enemy creates doubt. And he, he appeals to her with the thought of possibility. Temptation starts with possibility. Well, maybe you should try that. Maybe you should do that. Maybe you should hang out with that person. Maybe you should react that way. Just, just think about it. Just, just give it a thought. Don't, don't exclude it from your mind yet. That's what he's doing here. And one of the most effective methods that's used against us is the idea that we haven't been told the whole truth, which is the ultimate irony coming from the devil. That he would say, hey, you haven't gotten the whole truth from God because he's a liar. He's a chronic liar. He doesn't know how to do anything but lie. And yet he says to us, maybe God really hasn't been straight with you. And, and you know what? Because God hasn't been straight with you, there must be something that you're not getting to enjoy that God's not letting you enjoy. It doesn't matter how illogical that statement is. It doesn't matter how evident there are that God's established moral parameters. It doesn't matter how obvious it is to us that there will be horrible consequences from sin. Still, he tries to persuade us that the Lord hasn't been honest with us and that he is unnecessarily restrictive. This is the lie that we haven't been given full wisdom from God, that somehow God has deprived us of what we really need to know. Now, that's why there's so much criticism of Christianity and so much criticism of the Bible and why people say, well, if you believe in the Bible or you trust in Christ, you must be a very weak, insecure person who needs the crutch of faith. You just can't stand on your own two feet. And it's why science and education, which make all sorts of presumptions and, and create all sorts of, of opinions and biases and present them as fact, it's why science and education says believing the Bible is inferior. It's why there's so much openness to multiple ways of salvation. Why we're told that if we believe that Christ is the only way of salvation, that we're somehow narrow-minded and stubborn and uneducated, and unenlightened. In fact, you will be told throughout your life, and it will get worse from here on out, that believing in Christ and believing in the Bible is nothing short of ignorant, and that you and I are fools to believe something 
that is so ridiculous and that we're being deprived of really being enlightened. It all starts with, has God said this? Does God really mean that? Come on, Eve. You're a logical person. You're a smart gal. Did God really believe this? Believer this morning, do you, do you really want to believe something that you can't tangibly prove? I've never seen God. You've never seen God. We know there's evidence from creation. We know what our hearts tell us. We know faith. We know the Bible. We know what we share in common. But, but do you really, really want to believe something you can't touch? You're, you're going to put your confidence in that for all eternity? It starts with the creating of doubt. Then the enemy, look at the second thought, continues the attack in verse 4. He says, there's no repercussion to sin. Look at the phrase. You surely will not die. Now, why does the Lord put restrictions on us? And we don't like talking that way, but that's a reality. Why does the poor Lord put restrictions on us? Well, as any parent knows, there has to be restrictions or the child will be crazy, right? How many know that's true as a parent? How many have the moments where you just want to say, no restrictions, just go crazy? I'm tired of laying down the law. Why does God give restrictions? Because he loves us. Because he knows how damaging we will be if we're left to our own devices. So he doesn't do it to be mean. He doesn't do it to, to be hostile toward us and to say, well, I'm going to deprive you of all joy. He does it because he loves us and he knows there needs to be limits. But the enemy changes that person and he says that the reason the Lord doesn't want us to do certain things is because he doesn't want us to be who we really should be. God knows that if you eat of that fruit, that your eyes will be opened and you'll know good from evil and you'll be just like him. In other words, God is trying to deprive you of your liberty. Now, there's irony in that also. Because the Lord is keeping us from what is damaging so that we'll become more like him. He is the one who has freed us from the power and control of sin, which was the original state of our creation. And he knows that sin will only corrupt us and only degrade us, so we'll become less like him. But the enemy says, just the opposite is the reality. If you will disobey God and defy God and give in to sin, you won't need him. You'll actually become a God. That makes no sense. And there's no reason to believe that he would want us to be a God because then we would challenge him. But somehow that lie is effective. Somehow he convinces us that that's the right way to go. Again, the goal to create doubt in God's word. God knows that if you do this, you're going to gain understanding that he's restricting from you. And to help create that doubt, he twists God's words to create the impression that we're rightfully deprived of what should be ours. Think about how culture has, has just overwhelmingly embraced this concept in the last 50 years. Think about the things that are said that we're so used to now that they've become part of our thinking, even though if we heard them for the first time from a state of purity, we would never accept them. Phrases like, if it feels good, just do it. No one can tell me what to do with my body. 
If I say I love someone, then I should be able to have whatever I want and I should be guaranteed rights by the government. I've never been happier, even though I'm being unfaithful to my family. I've never been happier. I really should get what I want and why does God keep trying to deprive me of what I should really have? As one pastor wrote, when you begin to question the right or wrong of any action, that's the first indication that Satan is seeking to hold a controversy with your soul. It all comes down to rejection of what the Lord says is right, and it starts with a doubt in his word. And listen now, here's the key to all temptation. Once we allow any degree of doubt about the word of God, the door is open for us to disobey. Once we allow that door just to go, just, just, oh, maybe, maybe God isn't being honest. Maybe God doesn't have my best interest in mind. Maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe, maybe God is restricted. Once that starts, we're, we are just wide open to disobedience. Now, some people say, well, that's foolish and it's unrealistic and you are completely naive to think that you can just blindly trust the word of God without some measure of doubt or some measure of putback. But here's what I've discovered to be true. To not doubt the Lord and to not doubt his word is not naive and it's not uneducated and it's not blind. It's faith. People will say, well, come on, the Bible, aren't you serious? This is ridiculous. There was a flood and the guy got swallowed by a fish and Jesus raised people from the dead. I mean, come on, you're a logical guy. Really? You're, you're going to put your faith in that? Yes, I am. And that's not naive and it's not stupid and it's not unenlightened. It is faith. Listen, either God's truth is truth or it's not. There is zero middle ground. You can't selectively pick and choose what you like out of the Bible and reject the stuff that you can't understand. This book is either absolutely 100% God-inspired and true, or it's a piece of trash. So don't ever say, well, I, I don't get that, so I can't believe it. No, we have to believe it, because this is God's word. And trusting him is not only the only option, it's the right option. It is the most logical, educated, sophisticated, intelligent thing that you can do. But that doesn't stop the enemy who says sin won't harm you and God's trying to cheat you out of something by telling you not to do it. Now, here's the crucial point. Here's the crucial point with Eve after verse 4. If we will hold on to our trust here and not open the door of doubt, the temptation at that point becomes neutralized and it loses its power. But if we don't, if we crack open that door of the possibility of not trusting God, then the temptation attaches itself very quickly. Look at what happens in verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desirable. Notice that once we begin to doubt the credibility and the authority of God's word, we start to lose the sense of awe of offending him. And at the same time we lose the sense of awe of offending God, the enemy appeals hard to our lust. 
He goes right to our senses and says, here's what needs to happen. Now, once that weak spot is formed in the walls of our faith and our commitment, it's like a sandcastle that you build, and then there's a little hole in the side. You know what happens when the tide comes in, right? That breach starts to take place, and water starts to move through, and the hole gets wider and wider, and pretty soon the whole side of the sandcastle is compromised. You could have worked for 20 hours on it. It could be 100 feet tall. But if there's a little hole that that water gets in, the whole thing's ruined. That's what happens when we open the door of doubt. And then he goes after our desires, and desire becomes important. And the timetable for it to be satisfied is right now. Notice he doesn't say to Eve, you know what? I I just wanted to bring it to your attention that that tree might be good for you. Tell you what you need to do, Eve. You need to go home and think about it. Go home, get Adam. You guys have a little discussion over dinner whether it would be good because you know it looks good and you know that God's not being straight with you. So you really should go home and take some time. Come back to me tomorrow. Let's have a discussion tomorrow. Maybe in a couple days you can try the fruit. Is that what you see in your text? Eve, come on. God's not being honest. Go have it. Go get it. Don't wait. Don't delay. Get it now. Don't think about it. Don't don't think that there are going to be any implications. The only implication you need to know is that God's not being honest. Just, Just go do it while the iron's hot, while you feel that urge, while that passion's strong in you. Go do it now. Temptation never delays. You may delay in acting, but it never delays. There's no sense of future implications. There's no truth about what's going to happen. And I want you to notice here that Eve and Adam are not innocent victims. It's not like they got caught in some Ponzi scheme or something. They know exactly what they're doing. They make a willful and deliberate choice. And then after Eve does it, she goes and entices Adam to do the same. We know that's true because if you look back at the text in verse 6, you see that the Holy Spirit put in three specific realizations that Eve has before she acts. It isn't just the enemy saying, go get the tree, and Eve runs over, I got the tree, I got the tree. The, the Holy Spirit says three things cross her mind, three things impact her heart before she ever reaches for the fruit. Look at them in verse 6. It says, first of all, she sees its appeal for food. Then her eyes are attracted to its look, and then she desires it in her heart. This is not a blind, impulsive, thoughtless action. No sin is a blind, impulsive, thoughtless action. She deliberates about it. She weighs whether it's worth having. And then she acts. Now, prior to this moment, Adam and Eve have everything they could ever want. The garden is undamaged and pure. They're made in the image of God. They live in his presence. They have an amazing place to live. 
They have dominion over the animals. They're happy with each other. And they are supremely satisfied in knowing God. But the enemy wanted to destroy that. So undaunted and boldly and unafraid, he walks right into the middle of the garden. And he goes right to what God is blessing. And he tries to ravage it. And he does it by creating controversy. Now, just like he does with Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden, listen now, he wants to do the same with this church. He wants to do the same with every marriage. He wants to do the same with every family relationship. For the church, he will try to stir up division and controversy, primarily in the three main areas that we've studied. The Word of God, the character of God, and the liberty of man. He will always go after three three things. He has been on a relentless attack to undermine the authority of God's word in churches all over the world, particularly in America and in Europe. And sadly, that campaign has been highly successful. The first wave of division in any church will be over the conviction of the Bible and whether it has authority over our lives. And as soon as that is compromised, the church has a significant problem. The next thing that happens is a debate over the character of God, and then Jesus' message gets redefined, and the church moves to a soft and social gospel of Jesus. He becomes less Lord and more friend. Now, Jesus was the friend of sinners. We know that. But there is also no evidence in the Bible that he ever excuses or overlooks sin. If anything, he confronts it and says, you need to repent. So where we always have to be on guard, and you have to hold me accountable, and I have to hold you accountable, where we always have to be on guard is that we don't allow the authority of the Word of God to ever slip. If you ever see that in me, you come talk to me. You have that right and authority as a person in this church, that if you ever feel that I am slipping in terms of defending the authority of God's Word, I want you to talk to me. You've heard me give you that permission, right? Because that will be the first area of slippage. And people become more religious and they do less repenting. The controversy over the first two then leads to a debate and the justification of our liberty. And then there becomes an increasing wideness to our definition of what believers should be allowed to do even though we're told that the, narrow, the road is narrow that leads to life. That's not an argument for legalism, but it's also a defense against liberalism. The road is narrow. We cannot keep expanding the wideness of, of our liberty. If anything, I believe we need to narrow in our liberty so that the gospel will stand strong. But once this starts, then our relationships start to get affected. And the strength and the unity of the church becomes splintered because there's no longer a common belief. This week I was researching the the Constitutional Convention back in, I think it was 1787. I should know this because I read about five articles about it. And I, I studied that the 55 delegates who were there at the original Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia were, were there trying to establish the United States government. It included people like Washington and Franklin and Madison and Hamilton. And it was interesting because they had sharp disagreements about how the government should look. They had arguments over equal representation, 
interstate commerce, the regulation of trade, slavery, and even the office of president. Now, apparently, I didn't study too well in high school history, and I know that's a shock to all of you, because I never understood that it took from May until December to write and ratify the Constitution. And the only reason they were able to come to a place of agreement on all the major issues that they disagreed with is because they agreed that there needed to be fundamental needs for the, for the formation of a new, free, independent, representative nation. If they hadn't had that core, fundamental, shared belief, it would have fallen apart and we would not be standing here today. Now, the same holds true for the church. If we are not committed to know and live by the word of God, listen now, this church and any church will ultimately fail. And take it further into the home, because if the church is weak on these issues, then it will show up in the home. Families will be fractured. Men will be weak in terms of their morals. Women will be weak in terms of their relationships. There will be a softness of doctrine and practice, and relationships will be guided by opinion rather than by the word of God. And over and over again, there will be a de-emphasis on the word because of the risk that it might confront sin and might offend somebody in sin. And you know what? We've got to take that risk. You have to take the risk every week as you come to this church that you're going to be confronted in sin and that you might be offended by what the word says. And you know what? I have the same risk. I'm not up here to say, this is what you have to do because I'm pure from it. I have the same confrontation every week as I study and as I preach. Destructive desires, once that happens, once that breakdown takes place, and we see it right here in verse 6, destructive desires become tolerated and excused and marriages and the families feel it. Now, you may say, well, Paul, that's great, but it seems like you're overreacting. I'm not. Here's how I know I'm not. Because when you look at the text, you notice how quickly all of this takes place. This is one of the most defining moments of mankind. Sin and death are about to be introduced into every person's life. And I want you to notice, out of all the scripture that we have, 66 books, countless thousands of verses, out of all of that, it only takes seven verses for man to be corrupted. From the first suggestion to the sharing of the sin, it probably takes less than an hour. The enemy doesn't have to badger Eve. He doesn't have to try to persuade her over weeks of time. And Adam doesn't protest he doesn't say, Eve, you're crazy. What about what the Lord said? How could you have done this? What are you thinking? He doesn't do that. She hands him the fruit and he says, great. And instantly, everything changes. Now, we have to be very careful as believers not to be naive, not to assume that this kind of spiritual slide can affect us or our families, or our church. It's why we have to be so aware of the characteristics of temptation. The Bible keeps stressing the need for faith because the Lord knows how damaging doubt is. We see it right here. And he knows that when we're driven by self in our desire or in our thoughts or in our actions, 
that it will only pull us farther from him. I want you to look back at verse 7. I'm almost done. This is one of the most obvious effects of the fall. Before we glance at it, notice one very interesting result of their sin in verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, ironic that it's about figs, and made themselves loin coverings. Interesting thing about temptation. They got exactly what they wanted. And they got exactly what they were promised. Their eyes were opened, and they did know good and evil. But here's the tricky thing about temptation. There was also a deception in the outcome. Because instead of becoming gods, instead of elevating now to the place of the Most High, of the Holy, instead, what was the first thing they understood? They understood their vulnerability and their inadequacy and their shame, which is why as soon as their eyes are opened, they say, "Uh uh-oh, we're naked. We better cover up. Prior to that moment, it says in chapter 2, they were naked and unashamed. But now that sin takes place, they are completely naked. Now, the metaphor there is obvious. They knew evil now, and they knew they were guilty of it. When their eyes were opened, the first thing they saw was themselves. It's like looking in a mirror after you've committed a sin. I don't know if you've ever done that. But you look in the mirror, and you see something in your eyes that's not right. Anybody ever experienced that? You don't need to raise your hand. Anybody ever experienced that? You commit a sin, and you look in the mirror, and you go, uh-uh, that, that, was not, that was not right. There's a deadness in my eyes right now. Their eyes were opened, and immediately they knew. We're not only physically naked, but we're emotionally naked. Far worse than that, look at verse 8, was the sense of guilt and shame. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. How interesting that it happened right then. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What should have been the greatest source of joy and satisfaction actually now becomes unpleasant and something to be avoided. Their relationship with the Lord has been altered because of their sin, so they try to hide from him, hoping that somehow he won't notice them in the bushes. You see, sin not only exposes our guilt, but it exposes a lack of depth in our relationship with the Lord. The places where the roots of our faith and the roots of our commitment have not grown deep, and it doesn't take much to move them and to weaken them, and there's no strength in our relationship anymore. When that happens, how many of us know that we should quickly repent? That we should quickly run back to the Lord and say, Lord, I know better. I'm sorry. Oh, why did I do that? I knew what I was doing. I've got to own up to it. I knew what I was doing, but Lord, I'm so ashamed that I did it. 
But here's what sin does. It drives us away from the presence of the Lord and it causes us to think that we can justify ourselves and explain that what happened was just logical. And you know what? That's an absolute lie. God sees it all. He knows our hearts. And he comes in verse 9 and he asks that penetrating question, where are you? Adam and Eve, where are you? You're usually out here. What's going on? Where, where, what happened? Where are you? He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what's in their hearts and minds. And let me tell you, he's not coming here looking to smack them and condemn them. He's looking to restore them. If only they came out and said, oh, Lord, why did we do this? But they don't look at the text. We didn't read it. Look at verses 12 and 13. They make excuses. They blame each other. It's always a good indication of a selfish heart when you're blaming somebody else. And Adam even tries to blame God. Well, you gave me that woman. But after all the excuses and all the blame, look how each of them ultimately has to state the obvious. No matter what the reasons were, no matter what was around, no matter how we got duped. They both say two words. I ate. There are all kinds of excuses, there are all kinds of reasons, there are all kinds of temptations. We'll face them this afternoon. We may be facing them right now. But we never want to get to the place where we have to say, I ate. Temptation was strong, and I didn't withstand it. You gave me a way of escape, I didn't take it. The Holy Spirit convicted me, I knew better, I didn't follow him. I just ate. Now what do we take away from this? Let me give you a couple simple applications, maybe you want to write them down. How, how, do, we, how do we move forward? How do we keep developing fresh fruit? Let me kind of recap what we've studied, give some application, and we'll say good morning. First of all, here's how we can offset this. Never doubt the Word of God. Never doubt the Word of God. Now, that seems obvious. or Maybe for some of you that requires a new level of faith with you because you're struggling to trust. But we have seen from this study how the enemy values this tactic, which alone should tell us all we need to know about the credibility of God's Word. Anything that the devil tries to undermine must be good. If he constantly attacks the credibility of God's Word, it must be good. So what do we do? We become students of the Word. We become sensitive to the Spirit's teaching and leading in prayer. And when someone tries to persuade you not to trust the Lord and His Word, become all that more determined to know it and to live by it. You've probably heard the phrase before. It was in my grandmother's Bible. She said, this book will keep you from the Word. Uh, excuse me. This book will keep you from sin. And see, sin will keep you from this book. Bible says in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in his word with all your heart. And don't lean on what? Your own understanding. Why? Because once our mind gets involved, we get messed up. Trust in the Lord. Trust in his word. Second, believe the Lord when he says there are consequences to sin. Believe the Lord when he says there are consequences to sin. Now, every single one of us could name countless times 
when we've sinned and felt the results of it almost immediately, whether it was just guilt and shame or the loss of relationship or, or, or the pain of actual discipline from the Lord. One of the greatest points of prevention against future sin is remembering what it feels like when we do sin. One of the things that will keep you away from yielding to temptation is remembering what happens when I do yield to temptation. It's never worth it. There are consequences to sin, and those are there because the Lord is loving us and trying to protect us from future sin. Third, guard yourself against what appeals mostly to your senses. Now that doesn't mean just lust. Lust has multiple outlets. From sexual desire to materialism to coveting to desire for a greater social standing, whatever it may be. It is all about our weakness for temporal things, which is why the Lord says, don't be preoccupied now with what's here. Don't place your value and your priority on what's here. Prioritize what's in heaven. Be heavenly-minded. Don't be earthly-minded because this is all going to fade away. Think about what's in heaven. Value what pleases heaven. And when you do that, you'll be on the right track. And yet, this is such a powerful appeal, and it's only getting worse with the expansion of technology. So we need to ask for increased wisdom from the Lord. Lord, keep my heart pure. Because as I'm barraged with sensory overload of things that I have to have, Lord, make me wise about what you want me to have and about what I need. Last, recognize the temptation to always be dissatisfied. One of the truths that comes out of Genesis 3, and it's so relevant today, is that the enemy really enjoys breeding feelings of discontentment in us. You ever met a person that is what I call chronically dissatisfied? Their life is never what they wanted and their spouse doesn't meet their needs and their kids just haven't accomplished all they want them to. And my job and my church and my relationships and I don't have enough friends on Facebook. and Oh, it could be so much more. And it's hot and it's cold. I live in Wisconsin. And oh. It's never enough. That's chronic dissatisfaction. And you know what that is? That's self. My favorite verse in the Bible is Philippians 4.11, where he says, Paul, writing from jail, he says, I've learned how to be content in all things. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the temptation, whatever the disappointment, whatever the joy, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Listen, I'm done. That's the secret to faith and perseverance. That's the secret to, to resisting temptation. It's finding satisfaction in the Lord who we know is always faithful and always sufficient and always there. And when we're struggling, he says, I will always give you a way of escape. Contentment in him. Listen, when we trust in him, we follow his word, we will be content every single day day. It doesn't matter what's happening in your life. 
I'm not talking about happiness. I'm not talking about giddiness. I'm talking about peace and satisfaction of trusting Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, and we thank you for what we learn from your word. Lord, you know that we're tempted. You know our weaknesses. You know the areas even today where we'll fail. You know that because Christ was in all points tempted like we were and yet without sin. Father, as your disciples, as your children, as your servants, I pray that you would give us a steely resolve that we will not yield, we will not listen to the temptation and the doubt and the undermining that our enemy pushes against us every day. But that we will stand firm looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And Lord, that we will trust you. We will trust your word And we will take that way of escape that you offer so that we may stay pure and so that the fruit will just explode in the garden of our lives. Lord, help us. We know now that the enemy has been exposed, that he will be on the attack. He will go for more subtlety. He will try to trap us. Give us wisdom. Protect us, Lord, against what is certain to come. Lord, we will give you all the praise and the glory for how you are working in our lives. Lord, we love you this morning. We praise you for who you are. You are so good to us. We can't thank you enough for who you are. We trust you with confidence now. And we look to you to be our strength and our shield and our strong tower, our deliverer, our rock and our fortress. We hide under you, Father, because you are strong and mighty. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.